The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I've practiced as a geotechnical engineer for nearly 18 years. And in addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first-generation college students. I've focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and fields. It's by STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Stacy Kalasha, an associate professor at Kansas State University. She'll be talking to us about her research on soil erosion and how this affects the community and our infrastructure. Now, before I tell you more about our guest, I'd like to remind you that the Engineering Management Institute, the publisher of this podcast's new YouTube channels, How to Pass the PE Exam and How to Pass the FE Exam, focus on helping engineering professionals like you prepare for these career-changing exams. Please check them out if you are currently preparing for these exams as they contain some great tips and tricks for exam preparation. Links will be provided in the show notes of this episode. Now, I'd like to formally introduce you to our guest, Dr. Stacy Kalasha. Stacy Kalasha received her BS, ME, and PhD degrees in civil engineering with a geotechnical focus from Texas A&M University, College Station, Texas. She joined the civil engineering department at Kansas State University in 2013. She currently serves on two technical committees of the Transportation Research Board and the ASCE Geo Institute, as well as the ASCE Geo Institute Outreach and Engagement Committee, and on the Organizing Committee for the 2021 ASCE Geo Congress. She is a registered professional engineer in the state of Kansas. She's done a lot of research that focuses in on identifying anthropogenic impacts of soil properties, applied geophysics, and soil erosion potential, and characterizing infrastructure deterioration. We'll include a link to her full bio in the episode show notes. With that, let's get right into our conversation with Stacy. Stacy, welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. We are honored to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Can't complain too much. How about yourself? All right. Well, I introduced you earlier in the show, but help us out in a few words. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do on a daily basis? Understanding that every day is probably a different day, but... So I am an associate professor at Kansas State University in Civil Engineering, I guess a typical day for me in 2019 and before was, you know, I would get to work around 7.30 or 8. Usually um, I have class probably three days a week. So I teach for about an hour. So that might include maybe an hour of class prep and then actually going and then some office hours, you know, normal what people think 
faculty positions are. I usually have five to eight grad students. So throughout the week, I might meet one or two a day because I try not to put all of them on the same day. So I try to set aside an hour a, a week to talk to each one of my grad students. We also have like a weekly meeting just to check in as a group. And we really use that time to work on um, softer skills, like presentation skills and things like that. I have them rotate through and give different presentations um, and just to check in because we're all kind of working on similar things. Other than that, I might work primarily probably on proposals or publications. So a lot of writing and just trying to fill in the holes to help my students. I'm kind of the head and then we meet and then they go and work on something and we'll come back if they get stuck and, and just update me on their progress. So they're kind of doing the meat of the work while I'm working on the kind of the getting the money and then helping to keep the progress going with monthly reports and, and things like that. It's a bit almost like 50-50 with teaching and then kind of research activities, various research activities. And then I do a fair amount of service, but that just gets sprinkled in whenever you can find time to our professional community, to uh, my department and to the university. 2019 and before. So I guess things changed at least a little bit this year. It's a little different just because teaching online takes more time. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you are pretty well organized. You know, when it's on the fly, you can be more flexible. Also, a lot of my classes are asynchronous, so I want to make sure it's as clear as possible versus in class when you can stop and ask questions. And so even trying to think ahead of time where a student might have asked a question in the past so I can kind of put some clarifying points in there. So that takes a fair bit of time. And then also just because of the nature of travel and, and um, graduate students, I wasn't able to, none of my new students were able to get here. And so these days, I actually spend a lot of time in the lab. I was in the lab this morning at 7.30. I came home at 12.30 to shovel some food in my mouth and talk to you real quick, and I'm going to go back. So I've got a CU test running right now. I just washed some fines through a sieve that I put in the oven, and I'm helping a grad student set up a new test. So it's pretty fun. It's like being a grad student for myself. I've like botched a couple tests, and I feel like Frankie first year master's student. And I'm like, man, what was I thinking? <laughs> totally screw that one up. <laughs> So it's, it's been fun. Did you always know you wanted to be a professor? No. When I was an undergrad, I knew I needed a master's degree for most areas of civil. And I kind of explored different areas of civil each summer. And at one point, my whole goal, this is like shameful to admit, but I wanted a job where I could get a tan because I used to like be a lifeguard kind of situation. And I was like, man, I miss that. In geotech, I found uh, some people that would let me go out with a drill rig and then come back and work in the lab. And I really liked it. And then I did a master's because I, I knew I needed that to do some kind of more challenging projects. And it was like my master's was ending and my advisor was like, I have more money if you want to stay. And I thought, get a job, stay here. This is pretty fun. And then probably halfway during my PhD, I, I got the opportunity to teach and I liked that too. And I just realized I like the more open-ended problems that come with, with working on research projects. And so somehow I landed a faculty position and here we are. And when you're teaching, do you ever think back like, I'm really doing this? My experience as a teacher is fun because I always think to, that I wasn't, now as an instructor, I realized that I was a very good student, but I didn't think I was a very good student at the time because I never like got it, you know? And so that's the fun part about teaching now because I'm like, y'all, you got to do it this way. And I know what you're thinking because I thought this when I was you, that's wrong. Don't do that. You got to go down this path and we got to convince ourselves of this. Um, and so sometimes look back and I think, gosh, I can't believe I'm in charge of this. But from that perspective, it's pretty fun to explain things to people in a different way. I assume you probably see the, the light bulb 
or, or the aha moment where the student gets it and it's like, ah, oh, you get it now. The aha moments are fun and the real fun ones are when they come back and it's been a couple of years and they say, hey, you know, I really like soil mechanics and do you have a project that I could work on? I'd really like to go to grad school. And I think, oh, I thought I annoyed you because your face, that whole class, but there was like a face of interest. And I thought it was a, a face of like, please be quiet, lady. <laughs> so those are my favorite moments when they're like, I want to keep working with you. <laughs> oh, wow. The classes you're responsible for. Are all grad level classes or some are undergraduate classes as well? At the undergrad level, I only teach soil mechanics, but I get to teach it once a year. And then, yeah, most of my classes are grad classes. So we teach soil mechanics to undergrads every semester and then an undergrad foundation class. But that, that's uh, my colleague's class. I teach the graduate level design classes. So you have people, uh, imagine in soil mechanics class that they love it, they want to do it. And others are like, what is going on here, right? Some of them are just say, I'm so over it. I don't want to write a weekly lab report. Why do I have to do this? You know, they're like approaching their senior year. And I'm like, y'all, this is like applied materials. Think about how beautiful it was. And we get to say sigma still equals P over A here as well. And some of them are like, leave me alone. Well, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about your research. I understand that you've been studying or, or your group has been studying anthropogenic impacts of soil properties. Now, I didn't learn about that at all. So if you could walk us through how that affects soil productivity, it would be great. So this comes from, like I mentioned, I'm at Kansas State and in Kansas, agriculture runs the state, right? And that's also on the university. So we have one of the best agronomy departments in the nation. And I um, met a professor and and we really got along and she was telling me about in, in southeastern Kansas, they had this area where the way we used to describe it is topsoil is eroding faster than Mother Nature makes more soil. And I said, you know, I'm an expert in, as much as you can be in soil erosion. So we started talking about it more. And so we know, like science-wise, the anthropogenic impacts is just kind of how we as humans have affected the near-surface soil properties, right? So we know everything, a lot of things we're doing are already putting large amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But anytime you put any non-native materials like into the ground, like we typically do for engineering, you're changing the soil. But generally speaking, very, very near surface, these like carbon dioxide and things like that are changing the soil health. And so she came to me and she said, you know, like literally you can see there's areas of these farmers fields where they're having lower yields and they're having lower yields because you have like decreased organic matter you have altered biodiversity, we have biogeochemical, hydrological cycles are changing, all these things are changing and and they're changing the soil properties and farmers have been tracking this for years. We know when we have diverse microorganisms and things like that in our soil, it enhances our filtering of the air and water and it makes them more erosion resistant. That's the main thing that I've worked on related to the anthropogenic impact. So as our soil, in, in agronomy, they call it soil health. And as the soil health is changing, your soil erodes a lot easier. And I had already been doing bridge scour work and it's not just in farmer's fields. So they have their own reasons why it's happening there. Um, And I've done some research for them because it's the same soil erosion there that happens as it happens somewhere else. We're doing it everywhere. I mean, we've looked a little bit about like de-icing salts. And so when you have the de-icing salts that go off the road near the bridge foundations, are you actually enhancing the erosion that we hadn't predicted for, which could lead to more bridge scour, for example. Anytime we have 
erosion issues, you always have um, increased sediment load if it's near a reservoir or something like that. We're then talking about having to increase our amounts of dredging. So it's, it's a huge, really, when you think about it, it's a worldwide problem that directly affects most civil engineering aspects. That's one of the ways that we focus on the anthropogenic impacts is the changes in soil erosion. I have worked in crop production fields, but also for, for bridge scour. And then I've also worked a little bit on hydrophobic soils. And so that's another anthropogenic impact, our increase in wildfires. But also anytime you have oil spills, that makes soils hydrophobic. And, and we know as our soil particles go from being water wettable to water repellent, we again have increased erosion. We have increased landslides. I mean, we see these every year after we have the wildfires and we have an event and then we have a huge debris flow. So we've also been looking at characterizing how the hydrophobicity changes the strength of our soil, the near surface strength. So human activities can destroy the soil, right? Pretty much. That's my bridge that I'm going to stand on and, and die up on this pedestal. I really think that uh, we need to start thinking of just different ways that we can quit changing the soil for our own purposes. And then there's lots of geotechs that are doing research in that, you know, pretty cool new novel infrastructure that are looking more like Mother Nature. And um, all of those are kind of going to the same fold that we need to do things a little bit differently. Just because it works doesn't mean there isn't a better way that's less impactful on our soil. Got it. So your approaches or, or your studies are really looking at what these impacts are. Are you providing solutions or things that can be done differently or someone else kind of takes your research and says, oh, we have to change the way we de-ice? That's the goal. I want to get there. So right now it's kind of just proving my point, I guess, that it makes sense to stand up on my soapbox here and, and say, you know, so the agronomy professor that I worked with, that's what we did on that project. And so I um, collected samples from all across their field. We already knew where they had changing um, yields. So we knew we call them good spots and bad spots where their corn yields weren't changing. We collected samples, we measured the shear strength, we measured the, the permeability, we measured the erodibility, and we found that actually really near surface, they had actually packed it down so deeply that they had an impermeable clay pan layer. And so then what was happening is water was coming through the farmable soil and then just hitting that impermeable layer, traveling laterally and undermining the soil. So anything that they were doing near the surface wasn't actually helping. We ended up working with the farmers and telling them, you need to plant cover crops that go deeper because you're not losing your soil from surface erosion. You're losing it underneath here and you've got to keep that stuff. And so that one was one that we were able to kind of tell them this is what's happening. But sometimes it's just showing like, hey, we need to start thinking about new policies here because what you're doing is having a long term impact and kind of making the situation worse. And when you're saying near surface, I mean, what are we talking dimension wise? For them, we're talking half a meter, so pretty near, but in most soil erosion, you know, pretty near surface. So on a large geotech project, the stuff you would just be scraping off. Near a bridge, it's still there. We're still banking on that to support your foundation. For those that may have worked primarily in metropolitan areas, it's like, how does that all work? When we think about soil erosion, I mean, where are you seeing this most severe? Are there certain parts of the U.S., if your studies are domestic, or certain parts of different parts of the world? Like, where are you seeing this most severe? There's issue everywhere. Everywhere in the U.S. has bridges, and every single one of those bridges are susceptible to scour. And scour is when you have soil erosion around your bridge foundation, and as we lose that support, you risk actually losing your structure. And, and we've had bridge collapses nationwide. I mean, they haven't been focused in one state or the other. I mean, you could really dig deep worldwide and see 
cultures and areas where it's having more of an impact just because they don't have as good a handle on their infrastructure as us or their uh, monitoring. We do a lot of monitoring now, right? And so then we can say, hey, shut that bridge down just in case, or we need to repair that bridge beforehand. The, the erosion is still an issue everywhere. You did some research on infrastructure deterioration. Can you tell us a little bit more about your findings or how that went? Again, I've done a couple of different projects related to infrastructure deterioration. The, the most that I've worked on is with mechanically stabilized earth walls and specifically with corrosion of mechanically stabilized earth walls. So when the uh, reinforcement is metallic and I've worked on different elements of corrosion of varied metallic elements, and that's just a long-term deterioration problem that we're starting to see. And so what we've been focusing on, I've, I've done a few things for the Kansas Department of Transportation along this path. Usually right now, when we specify our backfill for the MSC walls, we want to pick something that's not susceptible to corrosion. And so for the most part there, your goal is to keep it dry. So that's what you want. You want the water to freely drain through your backfill material. So we use sandy soils. Sometimes we use gravels. But they also run a bunch of tests to make sure that it's not going to be corrosive. The first project I did, we kind of said, hey, the test you're running, it doesn't make sense. What's interesting to kind of tie it all my research together, the test they were running was developed for agricultural purposes. So the box was really, really small, and they were just measuring the resistivity of this really small box. Well, DOTs had transitioned to using aggregate backfill because it's a lot stronger and also it allows for free draining. So they were putting like three rocks in the box, filling it up with water, and then saying, well, the number's too low. It's going to corrode, which didn't make any sense. <laughs> it wasn't designed for that at all. <laughs> And so we started there kind of helping them get a better way to characterize the material that we're putting back there. And then in terms of deterioration, we've since been looking at, you know, we build the walls and then you kind of just go away and go about your day. And I've heard engineers talking about like driving home from work and seeing like a tree growing out of their MSC wall and they know there's nothing they can do about it. And they're kind of like, oh, la, 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 right? Because we don't really have a very good handle on our asset management. It's a real hot topic in geotech, geotechnical asset management. And so we've been developing methods to help them to be able to identify when corrosion is happening, when you can't see it, because we, if, it's, if it's occurring and just slowly deteriorating over time, if we could find it earlier, we could fix it, you wouldn't have an issue. And just understanding how our walls are behaving over time. We just have so much aging infrastructure in the States. We need a good handle on year-by-year -year performance. We need a good way to track when we could have a timely investment, right, in order to uh, mitigate a major repair or a major failure. Such as one example of how we looked at some deterioration specifically from corrosion. And then that's been pretty fun to go out there. And we have been coring holes to the front of the MSC walls and taking samples and taking pictures. And like one wall looked perfectly fine and we cored our hole through it. And then like water poured out for like a day and a half. And it was like, hmm, this one's not doing so great, you know? And we hadn't even taken our measurement yet because we couldn't because water was coming out of it. There's so many things like that in geotech that, because you bury it, right? You can't see it. It's doing fine. We need a better way to, to kind of monitor these things. So most of my research is in applied geophysics. And so we're looking at ways to use geophysics as a non-destructive testing method to be able to tell what's going on back there or down there. So for like geophysical methodologies, are you doing it on the face of the wall? Are you doing it at the top of the wall going down or a little bit of... We tried both. Face of the wall was what I had thought and that did work well. So it's the same, right? So usually we test from the surface down and air is infinitely resistive. So, you know, air is still infinitely resistive when it's going that way and going into the wall this way. We just have to be a little smart about where we put it to ensure that we're testing the backfill material 
and not like the foundation down here or anything up top. We did go from the top, but to look at the, these are kind of relatively small zones around the reinforcement. And so geophysics is good at really bulk measurements. And when you went from the surface, we were measuring kind of like whole system and some of the subsurface. It was also kind of a pain because sometimes we had to core through concrete or just whatever pavement was on top. Um, and so the, the face of the wall was just easier. If you try to take the approach of instrumenting it on the front end to see if it corrodes, it's like, I mean, it's going to be astronomical cost. I mean, would it be every element, select elements, select walls? Like, how do you figure that out? <laughs> exactly. It's an interesting challenge. It's an interesting thought experiment to go through. You know, what's the most cost-effective way? Because we do need to be watching how these are deteriorating. But you're right. We can't slap an instrument on every piece of metallic reinforcement. And it's certainly also not appropriate just to say we're going to only use polymeric because we know both of them work fine. And we know both of them have their own pros and cons. Let's say it that way. That's kind of the, I think, the next big step in geotech is just thinking about how we might be monitoring these in cost-effective ways. From a research standpoint, I mean, I guess you have to decide on what you want to focus in on, kind of, but I mean, there's some overlap there with those two approaches. Was that intentional or just kind of happened that way? I think it was an intentional. I mean, I really enjoyed, I really loved it when I started to learn about geophysics. So I got like our most PhD students, my project was kind of given to me and I ended up even getting into geophysics by pure luck of idea number one was not a good idea. And so we still had two years of the project and we needed to have a deliverable. And the more I learned about it, I'm really into, I'm doing a lot right now looking at um, electromagnetic properties of geomaterials. And so actually using geophysics as, as soil properties and it's all related to either how we can monitor it. You know, I do work for the Federal Railroad Administration and looking at ballast fouling. So as we're getting more fines in our ballast, that's also supposed to be free draining, right? But there's hundreds of thousands of miles of track. They can't be going out there and taking core samples to be testing. That's just not feasible. To me, geophysics is one of the most powerful tools that we can have um, if you can find effective ways and actually understand the data that you're getting and, and use them in a meaningful way. And so... There is a lot of overlap with near-surface properties and deterioration and, and all these things. It's all kind of how it's changing. Whether we've made the change, the soil is changing naturally, it's kind of all, all the same. One of the biggest things that I think about when I think about geophysics is just understanding the limitation, the pros and cons, and what's the appropriate tool, right? Exactly. There's so many tools, and they're all so much fun. And you can have passionate people like me that will come and tell you, this is the best idea ever. But you also need someone like me that can be like, no, that's not going to work. You're not going to find what you think you're going to find with that test. Doing a little research on my end, I see that uh, you received the Kansas State University Department of Civil Engineering Outstanding Teaching Award and the Chi Epsilon Advisor of the Year Award. Congratulations. Thank you. So I understand that you're very passionate about teaching. I understand that you're very passionate about your students, which is awesome. And during the pandemic, you had to teach undergraduate students online. Walk us through that a little bit. What was that experience like? Was it easier? Was it more challenging? Did you learn anything from it? Silver linings? What are your thoughts? Many, many challenges. Many silver linings as well. So yes, we went away for spring break. And we never came back. <laughs> I said, farewell, don't do anything I wouldn't do. See you next Monday. We'll be back here on Monday. And, and I was going to have a midterm the week after that. Because you know, no one wants to go on spring break and take an exam that Monday. But like the week after that. So we had it all like planned. The nice thing 
in the spring was we were halfway during the semester. So I already knew my students. I think that's a bigger challenge going ahead. I didn't teach an undergraduate class this fall, but um, just finding a way to get to know your students because I, I knew them for half a semester. So I knew who to pester and who to, who to check in on and just, you know, send them emails or send them little messages. But if you don't know them ahead of time, that, that's a little bit of a challenge. Certainly the silver lining was, I like to think of 2020 as future Stacy is going to be so happy with 2020 Stacy because like my soil mechanics class, half of it has now been recorded. When I want to go to a conference, I just go find my 2020 lecture and pull it out. I don't have to record anything ahead of time. I used to have my graduate students teach my class for me. And then my undergrads would give me this like sob story they don't teach it as well as you, which I think basically meant they weren't listening and they were trying to like play to my ego, you know, like you're such a great teacher. I didn't learn it as well from them. It's not my fault. I didn't do it on the exam. So I went around that and I started recording videos. <laughs> it's still me. <laughs> so you can't say that anymore, but that takes time to make those videos. And so now I have half a semester of soil mechanics and I have a half a semester of my, of my grad class. And then I notice for some topics, like, does anyone like flow nets? I don't think so. I mean, like really. I, we, mm, I don't like it. And I didn't like it as an undergrad. And so, I mean, A, I could plan my travel to where I never have to teach flow nets again. And I kind of like that thought, but I'm not going to do that. But I noticed that they were able to watch the videos again and again. And then we don't have that option. All of our classrooms here are recording classrooms because actually all of my grad student, my grad classes, almost half my class is usually a working engineer somewhere. So we actually have already an, an active online program, but it's only at the graduate level. And so undergrads would always ask me, hey, are you going to turn the cameras on? No, because you'll never come to class. I'm not a fool. <laughs> I don't blame you. When I was 21, if you said I could enjoy sweatpants soil mechanics, which is totally what I called it, by the way, I would, right? I would have stayed home and done that. And so the option for them to be able to have a, a high quality video and be able to go back to it when they want, I think was really valuable. What we had to do to survive this year in the future, you're looking back and you're saying, wow, really knocked it out of the park. Because it's like, in any normal sense, you're an overachiever by recording these videos, but it's like, we have to do this just to move forward. So that's pretty cool. Exactly. So I've been telling people that for a while when they say when they travel, it's just record a video, you know, record a video and post it, and you've got, but it, it does take time. So, hey, at least that's one box checked. <laughs> and not a lot changes soil mechanics year to year. So I'm good to go. <laughs> as long as you don't mention the date <laughs> or anyone's name in class, they will never know. Well, that's a good point to take a break. We're going to pause for a moment and we're going to have our career factor safety in segment. Stick around. All right, we're back. It's time for our career factor of safety in segment. When we think about geotechnical engineering, like other disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into our design. And what about incorporating a factor of safety into our actual career? Today, we're speaking with none other than Professor Stacy Kalisha. So you've talked to us a lot about all that you're doing, and I'm curious to know, how do you manage to have work-life balance and not burn out? Like, what is your factor of safety against burnout, let's say? That's a hard one when you think about it, because especially this year and when you, you throw in the, the fun adventure that is a newborn, 
I flirted with that line more than once. And so what I started to do that made it at first, I wanted to keep everything the same. And so I've been successful in my career doing things all this way for so long. And then 2020 happened and I tried to keep going and I recognized when it became unsustainable, I guess, is the is the factor of safety guide there. And so what actually happened was our daycare closed. So she was a little one with maybe four or five months old and, and they had COVID go through the daycare. And she was fine because she was in the infant room, but it wasn't financially liable to keep just the infant room open. So we had to stay home for two weeks. My husband and I are, are both working engineers, and he recognizes that, you know, even though my job seems quite flexible, that I can't just like hang out here all the time. So he was taking off work as well. We were kind of playing pass the baby back and forth. The first week, we legitimately played pass the baby back and forth. And like Monday and Tuesday, I tried to like get up, get her to take a nap, go to work, get up, take a nap, go back to work. And like by Thursday, I was like at the limit. And so I just realized, you know, I need to post my lectures for my class. And then we were lucky that daycare closed over um, Labor Day. And so he watched the baby while he was home. And um, I recorded all three lectures on Monday to where I could just focus on that. And then kind of after that, the rest of the week, I just said, I'm going to clean up my email and I'm just going to wait until he can watch her again, because it really was unsustainable to be, to be going back and forth. And, and I'm lucky in the fact that we can send her to daycare and um, both go back to work. And that kind of made me realize I need to reassess my goals of what's possible. And so the best way that I keep myself from the burnout is in small chunks. And so I've always, I'm like an obsessive list maker. And I really like to make lists because I have deep satisfaction that sparks no more joy in my life than anything than crossing something off my list. Now, this includes like respond to Jared's email and then I'm like, I'll write it and I'll respond to the email and then I'll cross it off and I'll be like, yes. And that's a good factor of safety against burnout for me is, you know, what can I do today? Make my list. It's achievable list. And it's kind of like finding the critical path of what really needs to happen. And once I found those things, then, you know, I had bonus time. And honestly, sometimes bonus time has just been catching up on reading or something small for my class that wasn't normally a priority in the past, but I kind of needed to like wiggle it in. I'm just thinking about what's possible and what I'm just going to have to table and giving myself some grace, I guess is the best way of saying it, that, you know, my class went perfectly fine. I never missed a lecture. I got all their homework graded. I had projects ending. I knew when those reports were due. And I have some new projects going. And so I picked which tests I could get done to keep them going, but not necessarily anything getting ahead, if that makes sense. It's not how I like to live. But once I accepted that's how it was going to be, it became a lot better. You know, once you're just like, well, that's what I did today. Pat self on back and start again tomorrow. It's like it's still going to be there, right? Pretty much. That's what my husband said. You know, he said, you know, you're always going to have a lot of work to do. You just got to figure out what you can do during the day and just be okay with that. That's a very healthy way to look at it. And congratulations on the little one to have a little child during the middle of a worldwide pandemic and having all those adjustments. It's pretty impressive. We have survived. <laughs> all three of us. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing all the insights you have. And you share some good information that I know is going to provide great advice to our listeners. Now, if somebody wanted to reach out to you and get more information, what's the best way for them to reach you? And social media or email you feel comfortable sharing? You can look me up through our website and you'll see my email on there. That's the great thing about being a faculty member. We're easy to find. I do have LinkedIn and then people do message me on LinkedIn, but I'm not like super great about checking the messages, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> 
and it might take me some time, but I, I usually reply, reply to people's emails. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 15, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.